the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 11. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Don't forget to head over to culinarylibertarian.com slash podcast and follow me on social media and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can also support Culinary Libertarian Show through Patreon. Anything you do to keep the proverbial lights on will be much appreciated. Uh, Also head over to Apple Podcasts and find and rate the show and please leave a positive comment. That helps move the show up and get more people listening, and the more people who listen can be more people who are getting cooking. Now that we are in December and Christmas is just a few weeks away, why not get your kids a letter from Santa for Christmas? Each letter comes personalized to your son or daughter and makes a very cool gift for lots of Christmas memories. Go to culinarylibertarian.com slash letter from Santa and learn more about how to get your own personalized letter. Okay, today I'm talking with Jimmy Clegg about the keto diet, what it is, what it does and does not do, and why does it seem to be necessary. We talk about the current American diet and the harm it has caused. Jimmy moderates the keto AF parenthesis ancestral and fasting close parenthesis Facebook page, which is a closed group you can join by clicking on the join button. And I'll have the link to his Facebook page on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 11. Jimmy is also working on an ebook about his keto journey. And you can learn more about that book also in his keto Facebook group. Jimmy? I'm here. Cool. All right. So tell me a little bit about you and your journey into keto well uh, about six years ago i was uh i was 500 pounds i was completely in denial uh you know the last time i'd weighed i I think i'd weighed 360 and had put on obviously a lot more weight Uh, i was in total denial and I got sick. I thought I had a stomach virus, and it lingered for, you know, a couple of weeks, and it became a month. And finally, my wife recruited my sister and my mom, made me go to the doctor. I hadn't been to the doctor in years. And at that point, uh, I'd already lost 40 or 50 pounds from being sick. Uh, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. At the time of going to the doctor, I had a blood pressure of around 200 over 130, uh, morbidly obese, of course. I had these lesions. Um, I had to have IV antibiotics and came close to losing my leg, potentially, uh, because of infections due to the Crohn's disease. And I, I, I tell people that's when I hit rock bottom. My doctor was very candid with me and said, I was 40 at the time and said, you're not going to live to be 50. You're not going to see 50 if at the rate you're going, something's got to change. And, uh, of course the standard advice from a doctor is eat less and move more. 
A lot of people don't realize that doctors have absolutely zero nutritional training. I mean, they're very important and very good at what they do, but nutrition is not what they specialize in. So other than, you know, get yourself in shape and lose some weight, that's about all the advice that my doctor could give. Uh, being, being the person I am, if, if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to change something, I want to, to know the mechanism and really do all of my research. So I started, I just happened to come across, I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and I came across a, a guy named Mark Sisson who was a kind of a paleo guy, but he had authored a book called The Primal Blueprint. And I listened to that podcast and I went and bought the book and read it and it made so much sense. So I immediately went on a primal diet and I lost from, you know, close to 500 down to about 360 and stalled out. During that time, I just continued my own personal research, my own personal self-experimentation and I came across some podcasts, Jimmy Moore's podcast and the Two Keto Dudes podcast, and uh, started really learning more about keto. I had heard about the ketogenic diet, but I assumed it was the same thing as the Atkins diet that I'd done in the past. Uh, but once I started learning the details of the ketogenic diet, I realized that this is the next step that I need to take to help you know, fix my broken metabolism. So... Uh, and here we are now. I've been doing keto uh, around three years and uh, reversed. I haven't had a Crohn's flare up since starting keto. I'm off the blood pressure medicines. Uh, I'm healthier feeling and mentally than than I have been in years. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. All right. Well, that's that's an impressive testament. So, what is the keto diet, what does keto stand for? What does it mean? Keto stands for the ketogenic diet. It was developed in the 1920s by the Mayo Clinic as a uh, pretty much a cure for epilepsy. Uh, and it was kind of abandoned in the 50s when uh, they came out with medication for epilepsy. Uh, Atkins kind of got the ball rolling again about ketosis. Uh, and then we've had 30 years of research or so now uh, showing the benefits from, of the diet. But in essence, what you're doing is you're starving yourself, or eating very low amounts of carbohydrates uh, so that your body is forced to uh, make its own energy. Um, we, the standard American diet, we eat so many times a day and we eat such a high percentage of carbohydrates that we are constantly fueling ourselves with, you know, with glucose that is uh, exogenous that we eat uh, by starving ourselves, starving is a bad word, but by depleting our glucose, we force our body to turn to alternative energy sources, which is the whole reason we store fat. Um, so we literally break down our fat and use the lipids and then our liver converts it to ketones. Uh, which is an alternative energy source, which is actually a much healthier energy source uh, than glucose. All right. So one of the things I think happens with pretty much any diet is obviously there will be detractors for everything, but 
you say it's healthier. So the question, two questions seem to come, is keto healthy? But then how does one define healthy? That's a really good question. Uh, keto is not necessary for everybody, but unfortunately, over half of the population has a condition called metabolic syndrome of the population of the United States. Uh, that is where we have, like I said, such high consumption of carbohydrates. Uh, when you consume carbohydrates, it's converted to glucose. Your blood sugar goes up. Uh, you have beta receptors, cells that sense this, and they trigger your pancreas to produce insulin. Insulin's primary job is to store. It's a storage hormone. It's an anabolic storage hormone. So insulin's job is to take the sugar from the blood and either use it for energy or store it as fat. As insulin is elevated, you cannot lose weight. Uh, insulin, if insulin is triggered and insulin is high, your body must store. Like I said, it's anabolic. So the big problem is after decades of doing this, of having this high insulin, our body grows resistant to insulin. Uh, this resistance causes us to need more and more of it, which, of course, eventually we're so resistant to the insulin that we can't we can't control our blood sugar anymore. And that's, you know, at that point, you're pre-diabetic and then diabetic. It starts with fatty liver disease, pre-diabetes, diabetes. It's kind of a, a vicious cycle. So what the ketogenic diet does is it restores, uh, hopefully completely, but it restores our insulin sensitivity. If you're sensitive to insulin, if you're one of the fortunate people that are sensitive and to insulin and resistant to this, then you can get away with a lot more carbohydrate consumption. But uh, it's an it's an epidemic. Uh, diabetes is an epidemic. Pre-diabetes is an epidemic. And uh, so the ketogenic diet is the best dietary intervention. And uh, talking about healthy, it's always healthier to intervene naturally than to rely on medications. So as far as that's concerned, that's why the ketogenic diet is healthy. Uh, ideally, uh, we want to focus on whole foods and real food and get away from the processed food. And then you can enjoy higher carbohydrate foods. But they're whole, sorry, my, my rooster's crowing in the background. But yeah. Uh, so, you know, ideally we don't want to be ketogenic forever, but myself, you know, 30 years, uh, 20 years at least of metabolic damage, I may never be able to, to eat a decent amount of carbohydrates, and I'm fine with that. But, but that's the reason ketogenic diet is currently, uh, I'm air quoting, healthy, uh, you know, with the epidemic of metabolic syndrome that we have in the United States. That's interesting. I scanned your manuscript, and there are uh, some interesting ideas that seem to be consistent with the things that I've read about keto, uh, and still probably pretty controversial. Um, I think one of the most notable things is the not eating carbs part, because we're, as you mentioned, doctors, I think as, as an industry, are probably well-meaning. I think that's part of being a doctor, is being well-meaning, but I also think there's probably a lot of either none or lack of information 
for the real important nutritional part. And we can get into conversations about the book, The Big Fat Surprise, and the at least faulty research methods of keys. But that's, and that's another show. Is the whole basis for ketosis, figuring out which of those carbs are bad carbs. So the question really is, is broccoli better than a pear? Exactly. Uh, and, and there's a, a test you can do called a carb tolerance test where you can, you can actually, if you go buy a cheap glucose meter, you can go to any pharmacy stick of testing sticks. Uh, you can, you can tr- sample on yourself, you know, fasted, eat a carbohydrate like a sweet potato and test yourself 30 minutes later, an hour later, two hours later, and see how much that carb spikes your glucose and then how quickly you recover close to baseline. But one of the big things is some of the things that we've been told are healthy. Uh, let's take fruit juice, for example. Your body does not know the difference between grape juice and Coca-Cola. I mean, it's it, all the good part of the grape, which is the, the meat of the grape, has in essence been stripped away and just the sugar, grape-flavored sugar water remains. And uh, so people are, you know, downing orange juice, downing grape juice, apple juice in the morning and thinking they're being healthy. You know, the sugar in that juice is just concentrating so many apples. The other big thing is fructose, especially with fruits. Fructose, and you know the demonization of high fructose corn syrup, rightfully so, but the problem with fructose is fructose is one of the sugars that our body can do absolutely nothing with. I mean, our small intestines may be able to to absorb a little bit of it, but the bulk of it has to be metabolized in the liver. And the only thing your liver can do with it is turn it to fat. So you eat a banana, for instance. Uh, a banana, I believe, is around 41% fructose. Uh, so you, you eat a medium-sized banana, you're going to get 30 grams of fructose. It's going straight to your liver, and the only thing your liver can do with it is turn it into fat. Whereas if you eat a strawberry... Lower fructose, a little more fiber in it. Uh, it'll, it's it's just healthier. So, yeah, there's definitely a difference between a potato and an avocado, and the effect it has on your body. Hmm. Is a banana one of those five foods never eat list? But fruits. I just, I mean, one thing you have to look at is anything you eat, as far as health is concerned. Anything you eat, look at the calorie density of it. And we don't count calories, but we're aware of them. Look at the calorie density of that food and then what it contributed to you nutritionally uh, as far as micronutrients. So, you know, if you eat an avocado or an egg, an egg and an avocado are superfoods, very dense in micronutrients, whereas you could eat a potato and you get almost nothing but carbohydrate. Interesting. So actually, back there was, I remember the time when um, the baked potato was hailed as this great thing to eat. And the the horror of it all was adding the bacon and the cheese and the sour cream. 
it sounds to me like we should have the baked potato without the potato and have the sour cream and the bacon and the cheese and, and, and go for something like that. Yeah, the irony of it is all of that that you mentioned is the healthy part. Uh, you know, I actually wrote a blog post on, on our Facebook page about that subject. Like, if you eat a potato, I mean, how often do you boil some potatoes, don't season them, and just eat plain potato? Seldom. Seldom. Yeah, but what is it on a baked potato? The cheese, the chopped beef, whatever you put on it, the chives, the bacon bits, all sour cream, butter, all that. That's a baked potato potato. The ketogenic you know, our approach, we use foods like cauliflower, which are nutrient-dense, uh, spaghetti squash. Uh, you know, if you make a pot roast and you would normally cube potatoes and put in a pot roast, it's going to be hard to believe, but trust me, if you cut up radishes, cut them in half and put them in the pot roast in a slow cooker, however you're going to do it, you will not be able to tell the difference between a radish in a pot roast and a new potato. I mean, so we have alternatives to almost any of these unhealthy staples of, that, you know, dominate the standard American diet. Hmm. Well, the radish is an interesting idea, and I can, I can conceive of how that works um, just from cooking them. Um, I don't, I, I can't see that the um, spicy bit goes away entirely. And I'm thinking, well, my kids wouldn't eat pot roast anyway, but if they did, I don't, if I told them it was a radish, of course, that changes everything. When you know what it is, I'm not touching that. Um, but it's an interesting idea. I might have to just try it and see if I can sneak one past them. Hey, honestly, the spiciness almost completely goes away. You, you just have to, I don't know how many people in our group have been hesitant. And I said, just trust me on this try it and then they respond back but they're amazement and like like i said cauliflower we we use cauliflower i mean we make pizza crust out of cauliflower uh, bread out of cauliflower we make this we call it loaded cauliflower but it's similar to a twice baked potato and uh, we actually took it to our uh, my wife's family's thanksgiving ga uh, gathering and we you know, we, we didn't tell anybody it was ketogenic, it was low-carb, and, and they thought it was twice-baked potatoes. She actually had somebody tell her that they want to get the recipe for twice-baked potatoes, and it was cauliflower, and there was almost very, very few carbohydrates in it. Funny. That's, it's clever. I like that. Man. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions. I just want to play devil's advocate a little bit. Okay. Uh, how do you... How do you respond to, or what's the what? What is the response to the person who wants only to lose weight and says keto is the way for me to go just to lose weight? I would say it will work, definitely. But if they have the mindset that, like I told you before, this metabolic syndrome is a cumulative disease uh, that generally takes decades to manifest. Uh, so if you just want to do keto to lose weight, it's going to work. But if you think you can go back to the standard American or the Western diet after you lose that weight, and it's a lifestyle. We really hate the word diet, honestly. It's truly a lifestyle. Now, like I said earlier, hopefully we can 
graduate to more of a primal paleolithic type of diet, but still focused on whole foods. Uh, so yeah, I'm very skeptical and I'm very cautious uh, dealing with people that I coach on just weight loss. As a matter of fact, I tell our people to weigh once a month if they can make themselves and uh, and judge by measurements because especially in women, uh, I had a lady the other day that admitted she'd only lost three pounds in 60 days and was ready to quit the diet. And after a little of the diet, I just said that lifestyle, uh, after you know, a little talking with her and getting more information, she admitted to losing five pant sizes. She went from a, a I can't remember, it was like a t uh, 12 to an eight or something like that. But, uh, and I asked her, had she been measuring? And she said, no. And I, and I said, it's just, you know, it, it's total body composition and uh, that, that we're worried about what the scale says is very deceiving, uh, especially, especially if you're obese, you can fluctuate anywhere from three to 10 pounds a day just from water retention. So uh, I really don't like people only focusing on weight loss. Uh, it's really health span, not lifespan, but health span, and uh, just longevity that in general that we're interested in. I tell people all the time, I, I could care less what you look like in a swimsuit. I would love, yeah, I tell people all the time myself, I, I want to die at 100 years old in a skydiving accident uh, or rock climbing. I don't want to you know, spend the last 20 years of my life bedridden or in a wheelchair. Well, dying from a skydiving accident sounds terrifying. I understand the idea of dying, being an active individual as opposed to being a, well, <laughs> let's just go ahead and make the joke, a couch potato. <laughs> exactly. One more devil's advocate question, um, and we're going to pick on the medical profession a little bit. Uh, I have read posts, um, not necessarily in your group, but in general, you know, people in other chef groups I'm in talking about um, the various uh, low-carb, high-protein diets, and a lot of almost knee-jerk responses are, well, my doctor said too much fat's bad for me, and, and, and also combined that too much meat is bad for me. I, I have seen plenty of information that contradicts that, but we not, we have a problem. We have lots of resources available, both online and in print, or we have the person with the sheepskin on the wall saying, don't do this. So it's a real challenge to me to decide which information is right? We have the doctor we're told to trust, and probably we should because the doctor has specialized knowledge that I don't have uh, about certain parts of how the body works. I don't know these things, but then there are areas of medical opinion, and it seems that uh, diet is one of them, where they haven't moved from the position of uh, which we were told as kids. Don't, don't eat bacon, don't eat fat, eat vegetables, eat vegetable oils, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So I guess there's the question. How does one determine which information 
is the sound right information? One of my favorite sayings is show me the science. Uh, so you really need to, you know, people will put these, somebody shared a, a post in our group the other day and it said something along the lines of studies show that fast food is healthier for you than bacon or something like that. And it ended up being a very good article, but the title was clickbait. And I think some of the big problems we have with society now is nobody takes the time to look at the research. Uh, they, they see an article on a scientific study and just read the one sentence that they use as clickbait for the title. And then they make a judgment on, you know, like go with it. Like I had somebody quit keto a few months ago because of that. Uh, I believe it was the, the scaremongering that came out about coconut oil and, uh, and, and so like, well, we're not, I'm not going to do keto anymore. It looks like I'm going to be going Mediterranean or something like that. And, you know, didn't even read the article, didn't look at the, the actual research. And that's one of the reasons I wrote journey to the center of the girth is because, you know, just me being the way I'm wired, I have to, I have to know why on everything. I'm not going to do anything without having some basic understanding. So I just assumed that everybody else was like that. And then when I start coaching and helping people, I find out 90% of people just want to be told what to do. Uh, they're, they're not going to take the time to read any research. Uh, so that's why I wrote the book very much in layman's terms. Uh, and not, not that I'm a scientist or anything, but you know, I do the, I do the studying and I know, and I try to relay it quick enough. That's why I did an ebook format. It's only maybe a 30 minute read uh, front to back. Uh, so that it's quick hitting and gives you the basic principles and then hopefully gets you going. And then hopefully you will evolve in the diet and learn more as you go. Uh, but one of the other things going back to your question is I think it's unfortunate that there's kind of the, the paleo, the vegan, the vegetarian, now the carnivore movement and they all seem to be pitted against each other the truth is any of those are night and day better than the standard american diet that has caused this epidemic uh any of those are and, you know going back to me being a libertarian as yourself from what i understand uh it enrages me that our government you know, had something to do with this, that the, that lobbyists and corruption was involved in the, the food guidelines that it's caused an epidemic. Uh, and honestly, it really hits home to me because my mom passed away in May of this year, uh, from complications from diabetes and, uh, and kidney failure. And it was totally avoidable, but she did what she was told. She did what she thought was healthy and it killed her. And, uh, and I was going down that same path myself until I, intervene. And so if somebody wants to be a vegetarian, if it gets them off of the, you know, if that gets them off of the standard diet, the Jack in the box and the McDonald's, you know, then go for it. It's night and day different. And, and the truth is, as far as nutrition is concerned, we're in the infancy of research. Uh, we just now in the last 30 or 40 years have the capability to really start understanding, uh, stuff like the gut biome, 
people don't realize that 80% of your hormones are created in your gut by bacteria, not even your own body. That the human body has 10 times more bacteria than it has human cells. That your brain, the, the hormones that regulate your brain and your cognitive function and your you know depression, anxiety, and stuff like that can directly be affected by your gut biome. It's called the gut-brain axis. Uh, we're just in the infancy of understanding this stuff. So it's unfortunate that all of these different camps like paleo, like vegan, are pitted against each other uh, when, in fact, any of them are night and day better than the standard American diet. And the standard American diet, I would add, you cleverly acronymed SAD. Right. It wasn't me, <laughs> but it is. Oh, well, I chuckled nonetheless. I thought that was funny. So in your book, you have the Ten Commandments. Yes, sir. And one of them was particularly interesting because it seems to be the most, I'm going to say controversial again, only in the sense that it goes against conventional wisdom and what we're being told mostly by even things like the Mediterranean diet and other diets is, and, and the commandment is this, no vegetable oil. Exactly. That's a bold thing to say, so tell me why. Well, first of all, can you name a vegetable oil? Um, I hate to answer your question with a question, but can you name a vegetable oil? Well, I would assume corn oil is a vegetable oil. Canola is a seed. That's not a, that's not a vegetable. A, what, what is corn? It's actually a grain. Yeah, corn is a grain. So the mislabeling is the word vegetable oil. Vegetable oils are actually grain oils. Uh, if you look at some of uh, Nina Teichelt's work, you mentioned, I think you mentioned one of her books earlier. Yeah, I'm reading it. The, it's hard to believe, but and, and my dates may be a year or two off, but I believe the first documented fatal heart attack in the United States was in 1911. It's hard to believe that just about a century ago, as prevalent as heart attacks and death by heart disease is now, that just a little over 100 years ago was the first ever documented fatal heart attack. Coincidentally, a year before that, vegetable oil was invented. It was the cotton boom, and they had all these cotton seeds at the cotton gins, and somebody figured out you could press them and use this oil. And then, of course, that evolved into corn oil, which is way cheaper. And uh, you can look at the parallel, and Nina does a really good job of it, uh, drafting it, but you can look at the the uh, parallel between the invention of vegetable oil and the skyrocket in heart disease. And uh, one of the, and, and maybe, I don't know her name offhand, but one of the leading scientists in the world uh, came out in the last year and said that you would be better off drinking liquid radiation than consuming vegetable oil. Uh, it's just inflammatory. I mean, it's like, especially grain, grains in general, we avoid all grains, but vegetable oil is just unbelievably inflammatory. And, you know, and if you, if I tell people all the time, if you consume something that inflames you, like if you can feel your fingers swollen or maybe your knees or you just feel stiff after eating something like that, you have to realize that your, that your fingers being stiff is just what you can see on the outside. Your brain, your lungs, your heart, your blood vessels, everything is inflamed. It's an autoimmune reaction or 
or it's a it's a immune reaction your body's setting up to the grains. So, I mean, we could that, that's another one we could go into a whole show on the dangers of of uh, vegetable oil. Well, that's more of an answer than I expected, and so I appreciate that. Uh, I want to hit the medical profession one more time. Do you think the doctors are? And this is a this is totally conjecture, and I apologize for the unfairness of the question, but you you might have some insight. Do you think doctors are under recommending or actively dissuading the keto diet uh, because they have a vested interest in ignoring it? That's really tough. I, I would like to believe that as far as the practitioners are concerned, that there's no monetary, uh, you know, nothing affecting their decisions. I believe they've just been taught. And you know, part of the big problem is the medical profession, you know, the, the modern medicine at the turn of the, the uh, you know, in the 1900s, the vast majority of cases doctors saw were acute infectious diseases. Uh, through science, thank God, we've cured almost all of these acute, acute infectious diseases. But the system is built on treating acute diseases. Uh, so if you didn't have a cure for a viral pneumonia, you would treat the symptoms. And I think the, we're, today we're dealing with an epidemic of chronic diseases. Uh, we've cured almost all the acute diseases. But now we're dealing with chronic diseases like diabetes. Diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance, not a disease of high blood sugar. High blood sugar is the symptom caused by our body not responding to insulin anymore. How do we treat it? We give people more insulin. The whole reason we're insulin resistant is because we've overproduced and burn out our beta, our beta receptors on insulin. So we're actually treating the problem of diabetes treating the disease with the problem. That's why when people get on insulin, they have to go higher and higher and higher and never get off because we're the whole thing that caused the condition to start with, we're contributing to it with. So doctors, my point is doctors nowadays still treat chronic diseases as if they're an acute disease. And I believe with the rampant, you know, corruption and in the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the sky, the, their liability and now all the lawsuits and the liability that the doctors have to face, the insurance they have to pay, the co-pays, the franchise fees. Doctors have to take on these enormous patient loads, you know, just to make the lifestyle they want to live, uh, which, you know, and I believe uh, Chris Kesser, uh, is a functional medicine doctor. He's written a he wrote a book called Unconventional Medicine. That's amazing. I recommend everybody read it. But he talks about the average doctor visit now is ten minutes, and something like seven minutes of that is introduction and uh, getting a background and the doctor asking a few questions, and only three minutes is actually, you know, getting to the nuts and bolts of the problem. Uh, and it's not the doctor's fault. So I don't think that. The, I don't think on the practitioner's part that it's anything uh, as far as corruption or anything like that. I think the whole system's broken 
And I think the, the doctors, uh, you, you think if you have an enormous patient load, you only get 10 minutes of patients, you're working, you know, you're on call at the hospital, uh, you know, plus your clinical practice, your, uh, your practice and the little bit of time you have as far as continuing education, uh, most of them can't afford to go to seminar or they can afford, but they don't have the time to go to seminars and continue education. So they get most of their material from pharmaceutical companies as pamphlets. And we know they don't have our interest in mind, our best interest in mind. So, yeah, I, I don't blame the doctor. Uh, it's really a pet peeve. I actually have a couple of doctors that I've, that I, I deal with now that are ketogenic and they'll be the first to tell you they, uh, my one pretty good friend who's a doctor said he, you know, through all of his medical training, he remembers one lecture where they touched on nutrition for maybe half an hour. And it was more of a move more, eat less type of thing. Uh, plus any, anybody, any business or any individual that gets any funding from the FDA has to follow government guidelines. They have no choice. So any nutritionist, dietitian uh, that gets any of their funding or grants from the FDA have to follow. They can't buck the uh, the guidelines. So maybe that answers your question. With the holidays upcoming, how can they who are or wish to be keto get through this holiday party season with some sanity? That's a good question. We, uh, first of all, and this is kind of controversial in the keto community because it's divided, but, and I don't know of any scientific evidence, but it makes sense to me that our bodies adapt extremely well. And that's a fact. Uh, I think if we stay on any program strictly without deviation, our body is eventually going to adapt to it. Like I lift weights and lifting weights is actually tearing your muscles, micro tears, and then they grow back or repair themselves stronger. Uh, I believe if, as much as I love the ketogenic diet, if, if you never deviate, then your body will probably adapt to it and, you know, you will plateau or have trouble reaching your goals. So I honestly believe cheating strategically and occasionally is a good thing. So I actually encourage our people in our group, go ahead and take the day off. Don't let that meal at Christmas turn into a week. And so you, you have to do a little uh, soul searching and, uh, and see if you are able to take a cheap meal or a cheap day and then jump right back on the wagon but uh, but also we, you know, my wife, we we sell. My wife and I, uh, we started out for a couple of our people in our group. We, I, I started out making these tortillas. I took a, cre a crepe recipe, and uh, I, you know, gave, you pretty much give up bread with the ketogenic diet. But I love tortillas, so I would buy the carb sense tortillas at the store. But I noticed they would inflame me. My fingers, uh, because of my Crohn's disease, I have this kind of rare arthritis that is usually gone, but it, it can be triggered. And uh, these tortillas would trigger it, and my fingers would get sore, and my toes would get sore. And I look at the ingredients one day, and there's three kinds of gluten in these things. And uh, 
And then it was just all wheat byproducts. It was all grain-based byproducts that they had refined heavily. So I started messing around and I converted a crepe recipe into tortillas. And uh, I posted pictures of them. A couple people asked if I would make them some. And then we, from that, it sprang into a, you know, our wife and I kind of a side project uh, besides our regular jobs. So we make fat bombs, uh, ketogenic versions of barbecue sauce. For Thanksgiving, we made pecan pies, uh, pumpkin pies. We make fudge, brittle, uh, working on spaghetti sauce. We do spiced nuts, sweet and spicy nuts, uh, just, just a variety and really a big variety of fat bombs. And, uh, so the sweeteners, the natural sweeteners we use, we try to stay away from, you know, artificial sweeteners, but the natural sugar alternatives like xylitol and erythritol, uh, stevia, sometimes, uh, you can really, I mean, a lot of the recipes, like just simple peanut butter cookies, you know, the only thing in there that's not really ketogenic is the sugar. You substitute that with xylitol and you can use the exact same recipe. So we've been really successful taking traditional recipes. And, you know, if it calls for wheat flour, we might use super fine almond flour. And of course, uh, substitute erythritol or xylitol for the uh, sugar. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but we've came up with some really good recipes and plus Pinterest. And, and there's a, my wife loves a website called uh, all day. I dream about food. Uh, there's a, uh, up close to your area, a classically trained pastry chef from England. Her name is Carrie Brown. And I think she lives really close to you. Honestly, uh, she does several cookbooks. She's specifically keto now. And she's uh, and then Maria Emmerich. There's there's a lot of really prominent keto cooks now that are out there. And so you can, as I touched on earlier, with the loaded cauliflower and spaghetti squash and stuff like that. We, you know, we make keto dishes that are clones of the you know the, the unhealthy stuff that that we would have eaten in the past that are as good or better. The almond flour is a good idea. I like that idea because I love almond flour and I've used it in flourless chocolate cakes, um, and it works out well. I was it's it's a it's a smart move. Yeah, and we we do things like uh, lasagna. Everything in lasagna is ketogenic except for the noodles. Uh, we will slice zucchini, or we will use. Uh, there's this amazing recipe called Fathead Pizza Dough, uh, and it's. Since Fathead Pizza came out, people have changed the base recipe for the dough. You can make cinnamon rolls, you can make noodles, you can make Cheddar Bay biscuits, identical to the ones you get at Red Lobster. I mean, it's just, there's there's a few staples of the ketogenic diet that are just so versatile, like a cauliflower I mentioned, Fathead dough, they're so versatile and make the, the, the food, you know, make the selection and the variety of the food really appealing now. There's, there's no reason. It's, it's no longer, people think of ketogenic as Atkins as just eating bacon and eggs all day. It's nothing like that now, as you could probably tell by the recipes in our group. Is there something that you would endorse? Is there a product that you, or a, an author that you know of that would be somebody that you would be willing to say yes. If you are interested in getting into some kind of a 
programmed to, with with uh, a structured routine to help? Is there somebody you say this is a good person to recommend? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of resources that I recommend. Uh, one of my absolute favorites is by a doctor named Dr. Jason Fung from Toronto, Canada. Uh, he's really not a ketogenic specialist, but he's uh, a diabetic doctor and he's having phenomenal results reversing diabetes in thousands of people. Uh, he wrote a book called The Obesity Code and another book called The Diabetes Code. And they really dwell deep into the mechanisms that that cause diabetes and the epidemic that's going on with it. Uh, there's also another book called Keto Clarity by Jimmy Moore. Uh, a ton of podcasts. Uh, Jimmy Moore has several podcasts, uh, Living La Vida Low Carb, uh, Keto Hacker MD, uh, Keto Talk. Uh, there's a podcast called Two Keto Dudes. Uh, that is an excellent podcast. Uh, just tons and tons of resources. Well, I appreciate your time. And before I let you go, I'm going, I'm trying something new on this, on this episode. And I'm stealing an idea from Nikki P at Sounds Like Liberty Podcast and James Lipton's The Actors Studio. So if you're familiar with either of those, you sort of have an idea what's coming. Uh, I've changed them to be consistent with uh, a food podcast. So, Jimmy, what's your favorite food? My favorite food would be porterhouse steak. Oh, all right. What's your least favorite food? Oh, man. Uh, wow. Least favorite. Well, first of all, I'm a 6'5", 300-pound guy, and, and at one point I was 500 pounds, so there's not many foods I didn't like. Uh, but I would say, like, uh, spinach, uh, although I like spinach and, and, like, dips and stuff, but spinach, collard greens, any of those leafy greens that are wilted and slimy when cooked. What gets you excited? Food-wise? Sure. Or just in general? You you pick. Uh, Food-wise, I, mean, I, try, I tried to get the mentality where I, I don't get excited anymore because I think part of the problem is food is thought of as entertainment, uh, which is nothing wrong with that, but everyday entertainment, that's where we get into a problem instead of it being nourishment. Uh, but as far as in life now, uh, I really get excited seeing people uh, you, you know, like I said, I'm, we, our group is around 5,000 members now, and there are some really big names in the ketogenic world that are making a huge influence. But the fact that, in essence, what we're telling people is to eat real food, to not eat as much, to be a little more active, and to take charge of their own health makes it really hard for the ketogenic research to get funded because... You know, people take control of their own health. They're not dependent on pharmaceuticals or, you know, big sugar or, you know, any of those companies. Uh, so they stand to lose. Most of these, the research that is done now is funded by companies like pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so it gets me excited to do my small part, uh, even though it's just a few thousand people. But, you know, every time somebody messages me and says they've lost some weight or they're, you know, we've had a couple of dozen now that have totally reversed their diabetes. And uh, 
knowing that I was too late to help my mom, but seeing us influence people and people change their lives for the better and then pay it forward. That's all I, we never charged for any coaching. Just seeing all we ask is pay it forward. Now that you've taken control of your health or on your way to taking control of your health, pay it forward, you know, share your knowledge with somebody else and seeing that come to fruition is, you know, it's what excites me now. What makes you turn off? Uh, huh. Makes me turn off political arguments. I see on Facebook all the time the, the Democrat versus Republican, and just I see all these people that have a lot of common ground that are just fighting against each other because a fictional political party that doesn't really neither one of them care about them that left their base a long time ago. So so seeing people that I know, everybody's everybody's a badass on on Facebook, but uh, you know seeing people tear into each other when really they've got a lot of common and they have a lot of the same uh, you know, moral quality, but because one's labeled as a Republican and one labeled as a Democrat. And it just, and I thought after this midterm election that it would subside, but it's still going strong and just, oh, it turns me off. I was, I fume when I see it. And, you know, I don't know if you've looked at my Facebook page, I kind of throw jabs both ways just to mess with them because it's fun. Let's sound do you love sound do i love uh wow this is going to be goofy but i love the sound of a spring i live in texas or thunderstorm just the uh sound of a storm rolling in oh that's a good sound what sound do you hate hmm i don't know if it's a specific sound but just your typical any sound that contributes to like a noise pollution just industrial unnecessary you know uh being a texas guy a deer hunt and I've deer hunted since I was preteen and we used to sit in the woods and and I guess I could say one of my favorite sounds is just silence you know and and that's what you you know back in the early 80s late 70s that's what you did when you sat in the woods but now it's you hear dogs barking you hear cars you hear uh, oil derricks there's beeping and when you think you're in an isolated area there's always something and it's just you never can just completely unwind it seems like and what is your favorite Food indulgence. Favorite food indulgence. Honestly, I've changed over. I mean, it would have been 20 years ago. It would have been sweet food. Uh, man, I would, I would, even though it's ketogenic, I, I go back to steak. I can. The argument is, what is more satiating, fat or protein? And uh, a lot of people say protein is really satiating. But I promise you, I could eat three pounds of porterhouse steak or ribeye. <laughs> I'll just, if you keep it in front of me, I'll keep eating it, which isn't necessarily a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I understand the feeling. I feel that way about lots of desserts. Um, I, I, I am an admitted deep sweet tooth, and so I, I know what my problems are. <laughs> I just have to face them. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, I've got one more thing. I mentioned Chris Kesser earlier in his book, Unconventional Medicine. Uh, you know, I would, I really want to bring up you know, in politics, we never hear nutrition and the diabetes Alzheimer's epidemic. By the way, Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes, but we never hear this brought up as a main topic. But you can reference Chris Kessler's book, Unconventional Medicine. Uh, over half, there's there's 350 million people in the United States. Over 110 million, so roughly 33%, are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. 
Uh, and then over half have metabolic syndrome, which is the precursor to prediabetes. Uh, the average diabetic costs $14,000 per year to treat. Uh, when this epidemic comes to fruition, it will bankrupt the country. You multiply $14,000 per year times 110 million people, you'll understand the problem that's ahead of us. And I believe in his book, we're talking around 2050 when this comes to be if something doesn't happen. Uh, so yeah, I don't know why. I mean, I know why, but it's not a big topic, but it needs to be. And Alzheimer's is right on diabetes tail. And of course, we know what heart disease and cancer, and they're all linked. They're all inflammatory diseases and they're all linked to each other. And this is a global crisis now and nobody seems to talk about it. So something's got to be done. Well, I think you're right about that. And I don't think politics and politicians are going to fix that for us. Not as long as there's money involved. I apologize for the rooster, by the way. I don't know how, I don't know how hard he's coming through, but that, that's part of my having good quality eggs. That's the sacrifice I have to make. It's, you know what, I don't mind it at all. It, it's, it's, it's a level of authenticity you just can't fake. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And go give the rooster a hug. Thank you. Have a good one. I appreciate it. Okay, folks, that's going to do it. You can find links to Jimmy's Facebook page and all of the books mentioned on the show notes page at culinarylibertarian.com slash 11. For this holiday season, Chicago Steak Company presents a holiday gift assortment of premium Angus beef and a chicken breast choice. The package includes two 6-ounce premium Angus beef filet mignon, two 8-ounce premium Angus beef top sirloins, four 4-ounce steak burgers, and four 6-ounce lemon herb chickens. Look for the pop-up email subscription box with an offer you will want to grab. Find the link for this offer as well as all of the other links for today's episode at culinarylibertarian.com slash 11. Today I'm presenting my appearance on the Sherry Voluntary Show. I had, I was on Sherry's show in April, and we talked about mostly food and food rights based on a book we were reading together called, well, I forgot what it's called. Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights. And we talk a little bit about libertarianism, and then we talk a little bit more about food. So uh, enjoy the episode. So this is a nice chat that we had, and it's a fun way just to sort of get into the first week of kids off of school. So it's it's a break for everybody. So enjoy the show, and I'll see you next week. Bye.
Hey folks, today I'm playing a episode on which I appeared on our friend Sherry Voluntary's podcast. We were talking about the book Food, Liberty, talking about the book Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights as it pertains to a libertarian position about food and property rights and, well, kind of just sort of rights in general. Uh, we sort of, as is going to happen when you talk to Sherry, you're going to go all over the place, which is the beauty of talking to Sherry, because you get to go all over the place. So it's a good talk. We had a lot of fun. Talked about uh, a libertarian POTUS for a little bit, just to, you know, see what would happen. Uh, and then just some fun food nostalgia when things seemed easier, which, of course, was when we were kids. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Thanks a lot. See you next week. <clears throat> the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 14. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 14. Hey folks, Dan Reed here. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts and find my social media icons as well as my YouTube icon. Also, head over to Apple Podcasts, find and rate the show, and please leave a positive comment. The more ratings and the more comments we get, the more people who find the show and the more people who listen are the more people who get cooking. Are the more people who get cooking. Also, please share the show on social media. Lastly, if you like the show, please do consider... If you like the show, please do support us through donations. Please do support us with pledges. Please do support us through Patreon. I have various levels of support. And... My guest today is Kyle Mamonis, a biochemist. Kyle's educational background includes a BS in biology from Rowan University and a PhD in nutritional science from Rutgers with the dissertation, The Metabolic Effects of Lineolic Acid Versus Saturated Fat in Male Mice, Female Mice, and Offspring Exposed Maternally. Kyle currently has taken a position as a postdoctoral researcher at the biochemistry lab of Dr. Victor Davidson at the Burnett School of Biomedical Sciences, University of Central Florida. He has been on and had experience with rigorous diet regimes, including vegetarian, vegan, raw vegan, primal paleo, a Jonas van der Planets, not Mark Sisson, raw paleo, which is raw meats, fats, and organs, and other diets.
Kyle is presently unaffiliated to a specific diet and has, instead, a goal to formulate and present a comprehensive and contextualized view of nutrition and health science. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. You can get all of the show notes information and Kyle's YouTube channel at culinarylibertarian.com slash 14. Have a great week and a spect have a very Merry Christmas and a good week and I'll see you next week. <clears throat> Folks, any time is a good time for the gift of wine. Visit my affiliates at culinarylibertarian.com slash wine for wine subscriptions for yourself, for your employees, or for your clients. And also check out some of the other affiliates for wine cellar needs and some charcuterie. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash wine. As we start into a new year, I was on one of my food groups and the young in skill baker was showing us her lamentations about bread and croissant. And they, <laughs> quite honestly, they weren't good. It wasn't that she didn't work hard. It wasn't that she didn't try. It wasn't that she she didn't endeavor, but they weren't good. And her comment was, don't you just sometimes hate bread? And I started thinking, well, no. So it got me into thinking about harmony. And what a good topic for entering into a new year. And harmony leads at least to two things. Harmony and disharmony. And I was... And it made me remember an old George Carlin bit in which he compared... Baseball and football. And, you know, Carlin was a master of the spoken word and would convey baseball in just glowing, fun, easy access terms. We're going to the park. We're going to Candlestick Park for baseball. And football was going to War Memorial Stadium. 
And it went on for about 11 minutes, and it's a fantastic piece, and it really illustrates a variety of things, one of them being Carlin's wordsmithery, but also a duality. So we can be harmonious or disharmonious. And sometimes it's really hard. It's really hard. So in my short response to this young baker, I found myself channeling a a a thought a school of thought a thought process in food which is i think pretty prevalent in old school bakers i think less so now and almost non-existent in cooks and that is to pay attention to the food listen Listen to the food. No, it's not talking. It doesn't speak. But it has a way of communicating because the food only wants really one thing to happen. And the one thing it wants to have happen is for it to be cooked correctly. Now, that part sounds easy. Well, what if you're going to make a smoked trout? Well... That has a lot of steps, which begins with presumably filleting the fish. So you have to do that well and out of the fish with precision cutting. And then you have to brine it and then cool and then um, air it out to get what's called the pellicle. And then you have to find the right wood for the flavor that you want. You have to smoke it correctly and you have to let it form the pellicle by sitting out of the brine and not over smoke it and not overcook it. And so there's a lot of things that happen in a seemingly simple thing like smoke the fish. In complicated things, complicated either in ingredient quantity or in skill level or sometimes both. So say this young person and her croissant. Well, a, a croissant is is a really, really challenging thing to make. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had my hiney kicked plenty of times, and I'm not saying I don't understand the sense of frustration that days of effort into a product and only to see the product be not good. It is a crushing feeling, and I'm not alien to that, but it is not the dough's fault. It is the baker's fault every time. And the harmony for this young baker and the quick point Facebook doesn't really allow for therapy sessions the quick point to this young baker is to succeed certainly in baking and in pastry you the baker must come to the dough bench with love in your heart and love in your hands and treat the dough right.
And my comment to her, which I thought was like, wow, this is sort of kind of inspired, if I do say so myself, was every day mixing dough is another opportunity to find harmony. I say, well, dang, that sounds kind of Zen. I wasn't going for Zen. I was going for a mindset for the baker that how you approach the job, mixing the croissant, mixing the bread, mixing the muffins, whatever it is you're making, there is an order of operations that needs to be attended to for that product to come out right. And part of the order of operations has nothing to do with mixing. It has everything to do with waiting. Or sometimes the things that you don't do, and that is you don't overmix it. You don't fold three times when two times is enough. And some of this is learned by hard experience. Some of this is learned by paying attention to mentors who have obviously mastered the skill you're attempting also to master. So, yeah, it gets, it goes into the deep end real fast. It sort of feels all sort of Eastern and and I, I can't help that. It's just, that's that's how that is. And this young baker gave me a chance to sort of ruminate in the waning, early in the, a chance to ruminate on the early days of our new year, some ways to maybe make a better year for ourselves, not necessarily in comparison to better than the last one. Let's just make it better. And and that's not a measurement I can determine. That's totally up to you. Um, those are your own measurements. And it doesn't really matter that I know what they are. What really matters is that you know what they are. And you succeed in whatever the small thing is that's the, the measure of success. For me, it's still pushing, 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 getting better at baking this thing or that thing because it's always some way to tweak and and make uh, make the cinnamon rolls just a little bit better and make the muffins a little bit muffinier and the croissants croissantier. And I still watch videos and listen to podcasts about people who cook and bake. And I listen to podcasts about people who politic, and I listen to podcasts about people who uh, e-commerce. And I'm making some of my own changes in the whole e-commerce affiliate marketing thing. I'm dumping a bunch of affiliates. (laughs) Um, Affiliate marketing is like painting the Sistine Chapel. It's a lot easier than it looks. It looks a lot easier than it is. So I'm making some changes there and I'm investigating and pursuing some other avenues to try something else. And we'll see how that goes. That will be my better for 2019.
Hello folks, Dan Reed here. Hello folks, Dan Reed here. Welcome back to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts to follow me on social media and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, please head out and find, rate, and leave a positive comment for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast on Apple Podcasts. And also, please share this on social media. The more people, the more people who hear the show, are the more people who get cooking. My guest today is Joanne Fa of the Invisible Foot of Government YouTube channel. She produces illustrated videos on economics and economists, which present sound principles is an sound principles in an easy style to access. Joanne studied fashion design, but was wooed away to economics by Columbia University. With econ degree in hand, she started an animation studio eight years ago and also co-founded a Bitcoin company. Joanne has been fascinated with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations for some while. and thought making animated videos of each chapter was a good goal for a person with an animation studio. She started her Invisible Foot of Government YouTube channel two years ago. Joanne, let's take a moment to mention one of my affiliates. Folks, learning economics can be easy with Joanne's help, but what of those topics you actually did study in school? Who will help you sort out the bad from the worse you were taught? Well, it's a trick question because I have the answer. Liberty Classroom will help you sort that out. Liberty Classroom Liberty Classroom offers over 20 courses presented in both audio and video medium and each about 30 minutes long. Just right for the commute or when making dinner. Click over to libertyclassroom.com slash click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash classroom to see the course list and offerings. I will tell you the best deal is the lifetime membership, but you can also purchase one course. Listen at your pace and correct the errors of your state education. Culinarylibertarian.com slash classroom. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. See the show notes page at culinarylibertarian.com slash 15 for Joanne's YouTube channel link and a link to Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. See you next week. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 16. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 16. Welcome back, everybody, to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. This is Dan Reed. This, happy to have you back, and I'm happy to be here. Follow me, 
head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and find and follow me on all of my social media icons. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel there. Uh, please do support the show through Patreon or Bitcoin. Everything Every little bit you contribute helps keep the lights on, so to speak. Uh, lastly, please head out to Apple Podcasts, find and rate the show, and please give me a positive review. The more reviews the show gets, the higher it moves up in the rankings, and then more people can listen. And the more people who are listening are the more people who get cooking. And the final final is please share the episodes on social media to your Facebook or Twitter friends, anybody who likes to cook or anybody who likes to eat. Share these episodes with them and let's grow my audience. Let's grow the audience. Today I want to talk a little bit about harmony. Not the music kind, the cohesive of all things coming together kind, the balance of all things kind. I was reminded. Let's take a moment for a word from one of my affiliates. Folks, start the new year off on the right foot with the right snacks. If you work in an office, chances are your snacks are pretty bad. Well, there's a fix to this problem, and it's Snack Nation. Snack Nation is a snack subscription service that offers junk-free snacks delivered to your office every month. Get the good stuff delivered right to you. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash snacks to sign up and get your diet and get your snacking managed. And harmonize your snacks. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash snack for snacks you want to eat. Culinarylibertarian.com slash snack. Today I want to talk about harmony. Harmony is, well, in things not music, balance, symmetry. And the easiest thing to happen with harmony or without harmony is obviously disharmony. So harmony, disharmony, balance, imbalance, it's kind of the yin and yang. <clears throat> I was given a reason to think about harmony when one of my Facebook baking groups, a young baker, had posted 
uh, a photo of some croissants that she'd made. Well, quite, <laughs> yeah. well, if I'm honest, they weren't very good. Now, there's two parts to the observation, either visual or taste, that something isn't very good. The first part is the thing isn't very good. The second part is The second part is the effort that went into making the thing isn't mitigated. It just means that the effort that went into making the thing, her croissants, wasn't enough. How do you know when it's enough? When the croissant comes out right. So in my cooking career, which probably, like most cooks' careers, starts off just jumping into the deep end of cooking and just doing, picking up some skills and developing some habits along the way, and they may be good habits, they may be bad habits. <coughs> putting all of these skills all of these abilities together uh, into into your kitchen behavior to become a cook or to become a baker. It's, it's the the process is mostly the same. The vehicles are different. Baking and cooking end up being very different even though they sort of look the same because they have heat and they have stainless steel and they have ingredients and uh, it's not the same. It's, it ends up being very, very different. So as I'm looking at this young baker's work, I, I responded and, and I tend to respond in something positive. Sometimes I don't respond at all if there is no invite for, yeah, what do you think? Uh, if it's just there, then I'll walk on by because it's just, it's just not that important. But she asked a question and I responded and <coughs> she asked a question and I responded that yeah, even though today's croissants and even though today's croissants weren't perfect, there's a chance tomorrow to come back and do it again. And the harmony comes to the dough by coming into work with, oh, <coughs> this young baker's post with these croissants and her frustration that they weren't as she wanted them to be, she asked the question, don't you just sometimes hate bread? <coughs> well, my answer, <coughs> my answer to her query was no. I never hate bread. As I grew in this profession and had the grace of working with and for 
uh, certified master chef Jack Shoop. Jack came at things as most experts at a thing would, but even with a little bit more, we would say, an Eastern philosophy. And uh, Jack's big thing for all of his young cooks or seasoned cooks was come to work, come to your food, come to your stock, come to your dough with love in your heart and grace in your hands. The croissants didn't work because the dough didn't work and that it's not the dough's fault. The croissants didn't work because the baker didn't do what was necessary for the croissants to work. Now, <clears throat> Jack would take it far enough to say that if the dough didn't work, then the hate in your heart for your product came through your fingertips and into the dough and your negativity produced negative results. Now, I recognize that that's not entirely going to be accepted by a vast majority of people, and that's fine. I happen to believe there's a lot of truth to the idea that in a craft, writing, painting, cooking, baking, if you have negativity in your body, in your mind, in your heart, in your hands, that's going to show up in the finished product of whatever the thing is your craft produces. So in my answer to her, Facebook doesn't really allow long-winded philosophizing. I mentioned to her, find harmony. Come to work with love in your heart and grace in your hands. Every day is a new chance to make the dough the thing that it wants to be. Uh, this is the part two of the sort of weird thinking thing is the food knows what it wants to be. Well, how is that possible? Come on, this is, this is getting crazy. Well, the croissant knows it's supposed to be a croissant, and it's just a very simple thing. Now, the steps to get there and the skills required to get to a croissant is certainly not a simple thing. Making a bannock is a simple thing. Making a biscuit is a pretty simple thing. But these steps require a balance. They require a harmony. And there's a precision, and this is where baking is different than cooking. If you shortcut the steps in baking, now I'm not talking about mixing a cookie, although you will get less than perfect if you shortcut the steps. If you're going to shortcut the steps on Danish or croissants or bread or puff pastry, the final result will definitely be less than perfect. Uh, in cooking at the stove, the high heat and the immediacy of what's happening in the pan allows for a fair bit of alchemy. We can adjust a lot of things, and every, every plate will be mostly the same, but every single dish that's made, cooked to order, is not exactly the same 
But they're all, they can all be really pretty close. High-level baking and pastry work requires harmony. And if I may be continued a moment of indulgence, the philosophizing and the lessons of patience and harmony come down to one pretty simple little thing, which is don't overthink, don't overdo. Be Gene Simmons. Keep it simple, stupid. Now, in honesty, simple isn't always easy. Uh, it's a bit of a mind bender to figure that one out. Simple may be harder than easy because simple does require a rigor and an order and a following of steps. It requires a discipline. <clears throat> easy would just throw everything in a pot and stir it and call it done. And it took me a little while to figure out the difference between simple and easy. Uh, it was brought to my attention by a cookbook author, and I honestly, I don't remember who she was, but it was a multi-stepped, multiple-ingredient recipe for roast duck with lots of stuff. And she said, well, this is an easy recipe. I thought, well, this, this doesn't really make any sense. Well, it turns out that it was an easy recipe, and it had multiple steps, but it was simple. Doing it easy would have negated all of those steps, thrown everything together, and it would have been just memorable for its badness, not memorable for its impressiveness. And I think that is the other end of how to understand simple versus easy. Um, I was in the habit when I used to go out to different restaurants uh, of ordering the most difficult dish possible to make if they allowed uh, special orders to be had, which was angel hair pasta with garlic, fresh diced tomatoes, fresh herbs, and extra virgin olive oil. It's the hardest thing there is to do because there's nowhere to hide in making mistakes. So you can't make mistakes. Everything has to be spot on, right. It's simple, but it is not easy. And that's, I, I hope, a decent illustration of what the difference can be. They can maybe simple and easy both taste the same, but the final presentation will be substantially different, and the uh, eaters and the diners' appreciation for both will be wildly different. Uh, another very simple thing to do is pancakes. I'm on my Culinary Libertarian Facebook page, I have a photo of pancakes on the griddle that um, some point in the last several months uh, I was making, and I thought, wow, I should take a picture of these, because these are just really cool-looking, impressive-looking pancakes. From that picture, I've had some engagement, so where's the recipe? Where's the recipe for these pancakes? Well, it's up on the blog, so I took care of that part. But 
pancakes. Everybody probably has a recipe for pancakes. Uh, more than a few probably open the box and follow the directions. Well, I don't use box pancake mix because there's no reason to do that. They're very easy to do. One of the things in making a wide variety of different pancakes, one of the things I discovered in making a wide variety of different pancakes was the vast differences in procedures. Now, I've followed some really good recipe. I've followed some really good recipes for pancakes, and they're all generally pretty straightforward. I ran into one recipe for pancakes, which was very, very different. And that's the one that's on the blog. And the initial difference is the single egg, or if you double the batch, the two eggs, whole eggs, are whisked till frothy. Who does that? I thought, well, this is just insane. Why am I going to take this extra step? I did it. And man, worth every minute. So the easy part would be to make this recipe the way I've always made a pancake recipe and just say, fine, whatever, or follow the procedure. Have the discipline to make the steps in the order provided and get something far greater than my expectations. And uh, I've done a few little tweaks. And one of the tweaks is I put the sugar in with the eggs. Yes, I know bakers, but we're moving quickly. Put the egg and the sugar together and whisk that. And as the egg is whisked with the sugar, it gives it some more structure, which helps keep the volume of the pancake nice and high. It's a little bit fluffier, a little bit lighter, and that's one of the things about this pancake that I like so much more than all of the, all of the other ones is it's not the same. It is a step above, and that's the thing that makes people go, how the heck did he do that? It's, <clears throat> it's simple. So then it's just a matter of adding the melted butter, adding the flavoring, the vanilla, Add in the flour, add in the leavening, in an order. And the order, kind of like the muffin method, which we discussed back a few episodes ago, is adding the dry to the wet, and the sugar and the egg are the wet, and the buttermilk, and the melted butter, and not over-mixing. Harmony. Don't overdo it. Let the dough rest for a few minutes. It needs time for the flour to hydrate. It needs time for the flour to absorb the liquid around it. And those lumps that you think you see aren't really going to be an issue because as the dough starts to rise, as the, as the batter starts to rise because the chemical leavening is doing its thing, it's making carbon dioxide, as the dough, as the batter starts to move, some of those lumps will be exposed and they will be absorbed by the liquid and they'll be all mixed together. And then the last thing is as you're scooping, you're doing the last little bit of mixing. So this is the simple part of making pancakes, but those little steps make a big difference. When I was chefing, I had some young men and women and they both got these gifts. I was in the habit of giving a Christmas gift to all of the cooks, and not all of them got the same thing. It was 
tailored to some degree to their personalities or their interests. One young man got a, a book on beer because he was a very, very talented uh, beer brewer and did a really bang-up job and uh, actually made some beer for my rehearsal dinner, uh, a thyme and parchment beer. It was spectacular. It was very good. Another young man got a book that I had been given as a gift, although I bought him his own copy, of Letters to a Young Chef. And this is written by Chef Daniel Ballou, who is very, very famous for very, very good reasons. He's a spectacular chef, comes from Lyon, France, and has written for the young cook, for the young chef, just a little kind of open letters addressing, in part, harmony. Not just with food, uh, harmony and balance in one's life. Um, so my, my <coughs> the tagline at the beginning, begin, the, the tagline at the beginning of the show is the philosophy is free, the food is on you, philosophy of cooking does apply, in my opinion, to parts of life. Order, harmony, balance, these things matter for our own personal well-being, but they also matter because of the well-being of the people around us. I've noticed when I am out of harmony, it aggravates everybody in my house. So I have a vested interest in finding balance and finding harmony. If I can project harmony and balance on my children who seem to perceive my imbalance with a radar precision unknown to human technology, they get unbalanced and things go bad. And things just get tense and that's not good for anybody. So balance, order, harmony. Believe me, I, I miss my mark often enough, but it's not for lack of trying. When Chef Shoup presented me this idea of harmony, in a very specific example and told me to in a very specific in a very specific example and discussed the idea of do what the food wants I was making some smoked mullet so we were in Tallahassee Florida smoked mullet is a big deal in the south especially in Tallahassee and I didn't really quite do it as it needed to be done. So his comment and was, do what the food wants. And I inquired, well, I don't, sorry, I'm, my ears aren't listening right. Now, of course, the food wasn't talking, but it is an intuition, and, under, and it is an understanding of the ingredients. So what fish wants to have happen to it if it's going to be smoked, first there is the step of cleaning the fish, taking the sides of the fish off of the carcass, um, brining them. Well, I've got to make the brine. 
um, taking them out of the brine, putting them on a rack so that the skin, the flesh side of the fish can form what's called the pellicle. The pellicle is the thing. Uh, it's uh, it's a little sticky, kind of tacky, and that sticky tacky thing is what's going to hold the smoke, especially when you're doing a cold smoke, say for example like a cold smoked salmon. Uh, even on the hot smoke thing, the heat's going to permeate, but you also want the fish to hold on to the color made by the smoke of the wood so that it has the attractive light brown color of a smoked fish. Well, my first attempt, I was more eager than wise, and I didn't brine and pellicle and all that stuff. So I went and got my handy-dandy book about smoking, find out what brine I need to make, made the brine, put the fish in the brine, put the fish out of the brine, followed all the steps, and it was as it ought to be, a proper, delicious, well-smoked fish. So the fish knew more about what it wanted than I did, mostly because I hadn't been paying attention. So to my young Facebook Baker's group member, there's every reasonable expectation that she wasn't paying attention to what the croissant wanted to be. And the croissant wants to be light and airy and extra crunchy on the outside and big cavernous holes inside. doesn't want to look like bread. Um, making it look like bread is both, I mean, that's, that's kind of a sign of not really super proper croissant. It's also, so it's simple, but it ain't easy. And you can hurry up a croissant dough and you can make the right shape and it can look right, but it will not be right. So, <clears throat> simple, not at all easy, and it might be entirely that there's a skill or two that she hasn't achieved, and one of those skills could be the patience of waiting the right amount of time between rolls. I don't know. All I saw was the finished product, and there were lots of problems. Um, but... Understanding the thing and knowing how to get that finished product created is part of the skill and the craft of this particular skill and craft, baking and cooking. I don't really know the first thing about painting. I don't draw particularly well. I don't, I don't even an attempt doing these 3D kinds of drawings on paper that people do, and I'm amazed, but I don't understand light and color and shade and shadow, and it's 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 a craft and skill I have not developed because I don't think I have it, and I admire those who can do it. This is something that I have a better understanding of and still work at getting a better understanding, but... That's my own personal quest, and that's not necessarily And that quest doesn't need to be yours. You have your own. So, <clears throat> so on this particular 
Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 16. Uh, it has been a, a bit of the philosophy, um, and I'll give you some of the food ideas and the recipes on the blog for the pancakes. Uh, there, I will even link to the recipes for the croissants. You can look through that. Um, croissants are worth trying, but there's a few skills that you can acquire before you get to that level. Making a Danish or making some puff pastry or some similar skills to croissants. Uh, it, there's no reason not to try them with the possibility that you're afraid of failure. Um, the good news is that they'll probably taste good and the people who love you will love you enough to eat them and they will taste good. Um, but try. Shoot for simple. Try the difficult. Yeah, but try. So those recipes plus the link to the Daniel Blue book, Letters to a Young Chef, will also be on the show notes page. And I think that's going to do it for this week. I do have some interesting interviews scheduled for the next couple of weeks. And if everybody uh, is able to meet time, uh, if everyone is able to... Uh, have an interview, then I expect some really interesting conversations coming up. I think you're going to like them. I'm looking forward to them. Um, so I hope that you are too. So go bake. Bake pancakes. There's muffins on the rest of on the, there's Make some pancakes. There's some muffins to make. Work on your croissants. And I'll see you next week.